0: All right, and uh, again, our focus here is, uh, through the rest of the time is to trace the events of this marvelous, this desperately important last week of Jesus' life. And as I said to you this morning, we have a great deal of detail in the Gospel by harmonizing the Gospels, uh, and we're going to do, do a good deal of that. Uh, we can come to really a... a, a remarkably thorough understanding of this week. So, but I want to start before the week. And uh, if you go to page 8 of your notes, uh, I have there, go there myself, two events, and actually I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, break it down a little further, two events which are preparatory to the Passion Week. By the way, for what it's worth, uh, the blue insert there on the next page... Uh, really nicely done. It's the, uh, I give you, first of all, a chart where I lay out the, uh, the uh, successive days of the week. And let me say this about that. There, are, there is some question as to on what day of the week Jesus died. All of my notes and all of the discussion proceeds on the persuasion that he died on a Friday. Perhaps during the question answer time, we can take just a, a moment to deal with that. I realize there 's a good deal of discussion it 's a an intramural discussion paternal right uh, uh, there, and i 'll explain that later on, but you 'll see that on the chart that that uh, uh, Friday is the day of crucifixion, and then on the next pen the back of that blue sheet, I break it down sort of thematically and try and pick up on some of the uh, Rhythm that we're going to try and uh, uh, emphasize as we go through the week. So, just that might be helpful. Just a survey and review. But let me back up once again. There are there are a couple of events which really set the scene, and I and I think the gospels are are framed in order to to point this out to us. And so, I am going to go to a PowerPoint which will just uh, enable me to kind of. Go through this. Oh, hold on here. Pay attention. We want to be right here. So here are, and I, I, I call it here, events which culminated in the triumphal entry. And I want to begin with going to Luke 13. Luke 13 is a, is a remarkable passage, uh, uh, and I'd ask you to go there. Now, Luke 13 happens some weeks. All right, now, I'm going to talk again and again about the Passover Uh, to which Jesus went. The final Passover. It's Passover season. Jesus is going to go up with his uh, disciples. He's going to take a vera. We're going to talk about it right now. A very deliberate and and clever, if you don't mind, route in order to get there. But uh, just several weeks before that, Jesus is in Perea. Now, let's do a little geography. Won't that be fun? I can watch your eyes glaze over when I say geography. But it's really important, all right? So here, very simply... Uh, the regions... Uh, oh, nuts. Where's my... Oh, it's right here, sweetie. Never mind. I've got to get my little stylus. The, 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 the political divisions of the land of Israel in, in the first century Roman ro- world are very important. Down to the south is Judea, right? Basically, Judea is between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. To the north of that is Samaria. Now the Samaritans despise the Jews, right? So there's very, very strange, you know what, by the way, I got, I shut up, but it's stunning the degree to which the more things change, the more they stay the same. When you go to Israel today, this area right here, of course, it's called the West Bank. Shouldn't be called the West Bank, but that's what it's called. Shouldn't be called that because it was called that when it was belonged to Jordan. It was the part of the land of Jordan over here that was on the West Bank, but it no longer belongs to Jordan. But at any rate, as you drive through the West Bank, because Israel has the state of Israel, the modern state of Israel, has allowed the incipient government, that is the, the provisional government, which is the Palestinian Authority, to have control of certain areas, uh, when you drive into those areas, there's a big red sign on every highway, and it says Jews can't come in here. Well, that's exactly. This is precisely the territory that Jews uh, was dangerous to pass through in Jesus' day. I mean, it's, re- it's really stunning. But anyway, the Samaritans. So you have Judea to the south, and then you have Samaria to the north, and north of that is Galilee. Now. And then let me, let me point one other area. On the eastern side of the Jordan Rift is Perea. All right, now those are the governing regions. And, uh, well, I don't want to get too deep. Yeah, I would love to, but I better not. But suffice it to say, with regard to uh, Judea, Samaria. Well, here, I can do it again. I thought I had this all. Judea and... Uh, talk to me, machine. I got the same thing. All right, I'm just going to draw it for you. I got a, a cool little... PowerPoint things, you know, but I'm just going to draw it for you. Watch this. In Jesus' day, in Jesus' ministry, now it was was different than this when Jesus was born, but when Jesus began his ministry in 29 A.D., by that time, uh, there were two, Judea and Samaria, this area to the south, were ruled over by a man named Pontius Pilate. Now you know that. We'll talk a lot about Pontius Pilate before we're done know this, that by this time, by Jesus, this time in Jesus, by the end of Jesus' ministry, by the Passion Week, Pontius Pilate was a crippled ruler. Now what I mean by that is he had, he had stepped in a couple of significant cowpies, if you don't mind. He, and uh, for reasons that I haven't got into, with regard, I haven't got, but there was a man named Sejanus who had been his sponsor, and that man had been executed as a seditionist, and uh, Sejanus was an awful anti-Semite, and after he was executed, the emperor, a man by the name of Tiberius, a a bottomlessly wicked lecher, but he had reversed those anti-Semitic policies. So, you see, because down here in Judea, there was nothing but Jews. Only Jews lived here. Uh, To the north, of course, were the Samaritan. That was a very different breed. But so you have Judea and Samaria ruled over by Pilate, and Pilate is, to a really significant degree, He's, he's, let's say it this way, that, and this is hugely important, that because he had been rebuked a couple of times by the emperor on behalf of the Jews, that is he, there was a dispute and the emperor had decided in favor of the Jews, Pilate, well, I'll turn it around, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem could get Pilate to dance to the tune they piped. Does that make sense to you? That's going to happen. That's how they get them dead, right? So just know that. On the other hand, to the north, why can I not? I have no idea. I want to advance. Oh, wait. Oh, that's it. I'm pushing the wrong button. All right, here it is. So here's here's the stuff about pilots. And uh, take away my gnarly drawing here, but and number six I right, say he's a crippled ruler, and uh, the Jewish leadership would get him to do their bidding. All right. On the other hand, uh, well, all right, there it is. Galilee and Perea. Now, uh, let me. <laughs> Galilee is the area to the north. Perea is to the east. Can you see those? Now, here's an interesting reality. Judea is difficult living. Galilee is luscious living. There is a Galilee, whereas Perea is steep. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Judea, Jerusalem, is steep. It gets plenty of water. Jerusalem gets a higher average rainfall than London. But the fact is that they get plenty of water, but it all gets, because of the steep valleys, it gets washed away. You can't save it. And it's very hard to travel, very little tillable soil, so they always are dependent upon others. That's Judea. What Judea is, the, the rabbis use uh, lo- love to say that it is easier to raise ten sons in Galilee than one vineyard in Judea, and it's really true. Galilee is wide open. You can put a village anywhere. You can put a just beautiful, lush hillsides and valleys that go on forever and so on. So about 100 years before Christ, actually a Hasmonean ruler, that is the, the, the uh, priestly family that was ruling Jerusalem before, before, the, uh, before the Romans came, he went up and annexed, conquered Galilee and annexed it, and hundreds of thousands of Jewish people moved up Galilee. What's that meaning? It means that in Jesus' day, if he's going to go to the Jews, he has to spend most of his time in Galilee because that's where they live. And he spends 18 months up there saturating the land with his claims and with miraculous proof of his right to make those claims. So, on the other hand, Galilee and Perea... Now, Perea is largely Gentile with some little Jewish habitation. Galilee and Perea are ruled by Herod Antipas. Not Herod the Great. He's a dead guy, right? The guy who tried to kill the baby Jesus, he died hold on to your hat, 1 B.C., but just before Jesus was born, whereas he left his kingdom to three of his sons, and one of them was Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was a, as I say here, he was a favorite in Rome. He, the Jews could not manipulate him at all. Does that make sense to you? So here's what happens, and this is where I'm taking you with that. Jesus is in John chapter 10, verse 22 it says that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. What do, you call, what do we call the Feast of Dedication today? Pardon me? The Feast of what's being dedicated. You know what the Feast of Dedication is? Well, I'll give you a clue. It says Jesus, John 10, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication, and it was winter. So what do we got going? What, what Jewish feast happens in winter, About the time of our Christmas? That's it. So he was there for Hanukkah. I mean, he wasn't there for Hanukkah, but it was Hanukkah. And the Feast of Dedication traces back to the reclaiming of the temple, by the 165 BC, or 164. But the point is, while he was there, he made the claim, I and the Father are one. And the Pharisaic, his Pharisaic enemies took up, took up stones to stone him. So the Bible says that he fled, he made his way, I should back up, he made his way from Jerusalem, right, where is it here? right here, he made his way over to Perea. It's about 15 miles. Jesus was wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. Why did he flee to Perea? Because he knew that he had greater safety in Perea because Herod was the ruler and the Jews couldn't make him, Herod do what he wanted. Does that make sense to you? Jesus always... He knows this. He's always in the greatest danger. You've got to understand this. Jesus had to move so carefully, so circumspectly. He had to, and 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 so he made his way over to Perea. He's teaching in Perea. And now we come to Luke 13. So let me take you there. Uh, Luke 13. Let me do this just because I, I like to have it in front of us. Uh, I will just go there. Actually, we want verse 31. So Luke 13 and verse 31. Sorry, I should have done this. Forgive me here. All right. Now, watch this. Luke 13 and verse 31. And by the way, could I say, this is one of those places where harmonizing is so helpful. Because uh, I, I'd have to take it, but you go to John 10 and verse 40. And it's clear he's going over to Perea. And then you come to Luke 13, and it's clear he's in Perea because he's in the region, the jurisdiction of Herod. It's right here. So he's over in Perea. By the way, evidently hundreds if not thousands of Jewish folk from Judea had come over to hear him teach, which just drove the Pharisees nuts because the Pharisees knew that they were in charge of all things Jewish, all things religious. And here's this uh, unauthorized, matter of fact, disauthorized, if you don't mind, They're very upset with him. So they come over. Now, watch this. Now, I'm spending too much. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, you need to understand, this is a ploy. Are are the Pharisees in the business of trying to save Jesus from danger, for heaven's sakes? They know that if he's in Perea, they can't. They can't do with him what they wish to do. They're, they're desperate to get him back into uh, Jerusalem area, into Judea, so that they could be done with him. And so they come in, and they, 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 again, it's a cheap trick, and Jesus sees through the trick. And Jesus responds by saying, right here, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform today and tomorrow, on the third day I'll be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today and tomorrow and the day following. Now, that sounds strange to us. Folks, learn to read the Bible in terms of its own culture. To whatever degree you take your culture to your understanding of the Bible, it's going to get in the way, all right? And, and, and one of the interesting realities is that the New Testament writers and the New Testament speakers, including Jesus, the New Testament writers wrote in Greek, they thought in Hebrew. And, and you're not going to understand the New Testament unless you immerse your mind in the Old Testament and get used to the thought forms and so on. Well, there is, a, there is a Jewish... Here, get lost in this. Number one, know this. Remember that the Bible was... just. This is an aside, but it's important. The Bible was written for an oral culture. Right? They weren't going to read this. They were going to hear it read. Well, one of the ramifications of that, and by the way, people in that day... Might I say, no insult, I'm including myself, they were so much smarter than we are. I mean, so much better to learn and retain, and they could memorize. uh, I think if you took a guy off the docks of Caesarea Maritima from the first century, just a dock worker, brought him here, he was able to maintain his, 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 his learned abilities and so on, he could make a fortune going to nightclubs and doing feats of memory that we would regard as totally superhuman, and he'd think, what are you talking about? Every, you know, it's just, it's, a, it's just a different culture. Well, my point is, because it's an oral culture, they're going to learn by hearing, the author has to insinuate whatever he wants of emphasis and nuance and so on in the text. Does that make sense to you? You can't rely on exclamation marks, you can't underline, none of that's going to work. It's got to be in the text. And there is a Hebraism, a, a, a Hebrew nuance, a grammatical device, by which you indicate fullness or perfection and it's called the numerical progression have you ever heard of that now almost everyone in the room knows what a numerical progression is you've never heard of by that cuz i can start one and you can finish it here it is six things the lord hates what yea seven are an abomination For two iniquities, I'm going to judge more up. Yea, for three. Three things I don't understand. Yea, four. It's always X. Yea, X plus one. And it always means fullness or emphasis. That makes sense to you? Get used to it. The the, the point is not there in Proverbs 30 that there are only seven things the Lord hates. It's that he really, really hates these. Six things he hates, yea, seven. He really hates these. Well, see what Jesus is doing here. He says i'm going to perform cures and so on today and tomorrow and the third day And he says it again nevertheless i must journey today tomorrow and the day following so what he is saying is it is what he's saying he is saying to those pharisees who have murder in their hearts and who have come to try and trip him trick him back into judea he's saying i'm not going to fall for your cheap little trick in the time of god's fullness when the time is full i'm going to do it today and tomorrow and on the third day when the time, when God's time is here, does that make sense to you? So he begins by saying, "I'm not going to fall for your little trick," but then he says this, and this is staggering. And and by the way, let's set the scene. He's in Perea. He's twenty twenty five miles from Jerusalem. He is this this lament that he's about to express is sparked by the fact that the leaders of Jerusalem those those Pharisees, and by the way, you could see a Pharisee coming a mile off. I mean, their blue was bluer, and their fringe was longer, and their turban was higher. They wore a virtual uniform. And now they've come, and they don't like coming to Gentile territory, but they've paid the price and walked all the way down into the rift and across the Jordan and up into Perea finding Jesus, all so that they can get him back to Jerusalem so they can kill him. And Jesus' heart is heavy as he realizes the hatred of these leaders of Jerusalem. And so from afar, Jesus weeps, and he says, you'll see it there, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing see. Now I want you to hear this. Your house is left left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you'll not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now... This is the big issue. You need to understand that that last last phrase, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord," is from Psalm 118. And I would I'm going to go there, but you can go there with me. Psalm 118 is uh, uh, the Psalm of Messianic inauguration. It's a psalm which includes, in, in, in a large part of it, God is instructing Israel. How to receive her Messiah? As a matter of fact, he says, and you know, now I've given it away because it's in front of you. But I I tell people all the time, there's a verse in in Psalm 118 that everybody in the room knows by heart. You don't know, you know it by heart, and that is right there, right? You see it, verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Now we have the chorus and we sing, and a lot of people every day get up and say, "Ah, this is the okay." Help yourself. That's not what this psalmist is talking about. He's not talking about this day or that. He is talking about the day of Messiah's appearance. The day when the promise of Genesis 3.15 finally appears, when the seed of the woman who is able to crush the head of the enemy serpent is finally going to appear. And hear what he's saying when he says, this is the day which the Lord has made. What he means is, this is the day that only God could accomplish. And as they welcomed their Messiah, they were taught... This is the day. And by the way, this is why when Jesus does ride in, and we're going to talk about it in just a bit, into Jerusalem on the triumph, what we think of as the triumphal entry, Sunday morning, and uh, they are crying out. And by the way, this is what I want you to see. Uh, here it is right here. I've got to do this to make this work. Verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember Luke 13? You'll not see me until you cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, and, and I was going to say, too, that it's interesting that, that uh, when Jesus did ride into the city, and they were crying out, blesses you, and the Pharisees tried to get him to stop. Remember that? Jesus said, if they stop what? The very stones. Why? Because this is the day which the Lord, that day was March 29th, 33 AD. It was the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And, and, and now it's interesting, and I, I'm going to say this to you now and come back to it in a minute, but it's interesting that uh, in the psalm where they are being taught how to receive their Messiah, that they are taught to cry out, you see it there, save now. Can you say that in the Hebrew? What is it? Hosanna, Hoshanah. Now, it's really interesting that almost all, uh, that was, for a long time that was tra- that was just transliterated, and so that word Hosanna has come to just be kind of a nice but meaningless praise word that doesn't have any meaning behind it. It was just saying, it means something, folks. I heard a man say not too long ago, he was leading a song, he says, someday we're going to sing Hosanna with the angels. The angels don't know what salvation is. Going to, I don't think the angels are going to sing that. The fact is, now, my point is simply this, that God is telling Israel hundreds of years before Messiah appears. He is spelling out exactly how they're to receive him. And uh, God says, you cry out, be our Savior. Save now. That's built in to the understanding of the Messiah. All right, so I leave it alone. The point is, In Luke 13, now here's the point, and and get this. In Luke 13, we don't know exactly how long, but certainly several weeks, maybe two, three months, before the event that we remember as the uh, the triumphal entry, Jesus said to some angry, murderous Pharisees as he wept over Jerusalem from afar, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, how oft would I gather you to myself? You would not, therefore your house is left to you desolate. Then he makes a promise you're not going to see me until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Isn't that what he said? Luke 13. So what is he saying? Now think about it. He is saying, you're not going to see me until you welcome me as Messiah. Now, if you'd have been in that crowd that day, I think you'd have said to yourself, you know what? That's not going to happen. I know something about these Pharisees, I know the degree to which the common man, especially in Jerusalem, checks his mind with those Pharisees. Those Pharisees run the city of Jerusalem. Let me tell you, that city is not going to welcome you as Messiah. But just several weeks later, that city welcomes him as Messiah. Now here's my point, and I've seen this again several times, where it's depicted as if Jesus rides into the city, and all of a sudden the city erupts, and he's going, ooh, wow, who thought, I didn't see this coming. This is swell. Folks, this is where I want to take you. Jesus orchestrated the triumphal entry. He made it happen. He made it happen against all possibilities. Not just probabilities, but all possibilities. And I think, and this is where I've got to take you on a whirlwind tour I think we can recover in the Bible how he did it so stay with me I'm going to take you it begins with the raising of Lazarus so Jesus is in Perea sometime we don't know how much probably not too much later a messenger came to Perea Jesus in Perea and he said the one whom you love is sick he's talking about Lazarus Jesus tarries two days how I'd love to talk to you about that and then he goes to... Ra- what, uh, by the way, when Jesus finally... This is John 11. And when Jesus finally told his disciples that he was going... They were going to go to, to, to Jerusalem to tend to Lazarus, what did Thomas say? You remember? I think it was Thomas, wasn't it? Remember what he said? Let's go die with him. That's how dangerous it was for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. You've got to understand that. It's going to get worse. So Jesus does, in fact, take his disciples... And they come to Bethany. Now, Bethany, I, I have a map here, but Jerusalem is here. Bethany is here. Maybe I've got that drawn out. But uh, the fact is, he comes from Berea to... Uh, I'm just going to leave it there. All right, I've got to be quick here. Ber- Bethany, this is so important. Bethany, and by the way, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus... During the months of what we refer to as his Judean ministry, when he sent out the 70 and so on, he comes to Bethany and befriends this family. And now he comes, and when he, when he arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, I think that's twice important, and I think it's deliberate. That's why Jesus tarried. It's, it's interesting that it says when he, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he tarried for two days because he loved him so much. So now he shows up. There's so much going on here. And Lazarus has been, has been dead for four days. Now, they're, they're, I think there's a twofold significance to that. When a man died in that culture, and I told you earlier, get to know this culture. Read about it. Study it. And two places to start are marriage and burial because they're so different from what they are in our culture, and they show up in the Bible. Spend some time. Just get a couple books. Read about marriage and burial in Jewish culture. Let me tell you a little bit about burial. When a man dies, Lazarus was wealthy. I think this was true of really most of the Jews, but certainly the wealthy. Uh, The family had a cave tomb. Immediately, his body would be washed and wrapped and laid in that cave tomb. Now, it was going to lay there for three days, just three days. And you could attend to his body. In Jewish culture, there is nothing more incumbent upon you than to properly care for the body of someone you love who has died. And so the word would have to go out, and runners and servants would go out and fetch his closest associates, quick, come, so that before the sun goes down on that third day, you can come and just participate in the, in the, in the burial process, wrap his body, and so on. So that's been going on for three... It, 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 now, actually, as the sun goes down on the third day, the tomb is sealed. And the reason is quite simple, and that is the Jews make no attempt to retard Decay. They don't embalm or anything like that. So by the end of the third day, that's why they would take strips of cloth and, and, and soak them in kind of cheap perfume and then wrap his body just to try and keep the smell down. You're in a little cave, and the body begins to really smell. And by the end of the third day, it becomes so bad that you're going to roll, and the tomb was almost always in some sort of... They didn't have graveyards. And, uh, the tomb was in some sort of living space. Maybe you have a garden out there. You just dig a tomb. Well, that's the case, and so you're going to be working out there, and that body is going to just an awful stench for several days or several weeks. So you roll the stone over it, you take mud and chink it, and so on to keep that smelling. So here comes Jesus. Now, I think that's the first reason it's important. I'll come back to it. The second reason that it's important that he showed up on the fourth day is this: that there was a very deliberate cycle of mourning, and there was a but the high day of mourning was the fourth day, and Lazarus was wealthy. And I think many of the Jewish leadership had come out to attend to his funeral and so on. So there was a big crowd there that afternoon when Jesus showed up on the fourth day. Comes, Martha gets after him, Mary hears that he's out at the tomb, or he's outside. They go out, everybody follows her, now he comes to the tomb. And, and you know what? For some reason, I just think when we read these stories, we, 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 we just be careful to appreciate the drama in this story. Here they come to this tomb, and everybody's weeping appropriately and so on. And Jesus stands there and says, roll back the stone. And Martha, who is, I always think, kind of the little Miss Homemaker. Is she the Martha Stewart? You know, I don't know if you can still get it. With it. But, but you know, she's, this is, a, you can't imagine. See, the reason, well, she says, no, you can't do that. His four days, he stinks. Now, what that means is that all of these people who have come, that stench They're going to be offended, and it's going to get in their nose, and maybe they're going to have to launder their stuff. And I think that's exactly what happened. Jesus said, no, you roll it back. And so now everybody backs up, covers their nose, oh, you know, for a minute, and now Jesus says, Lazarus, come out of there. Now, folks, can you imagine the drama? It says he was all wrapped, remember? I mean, it's like he... <laughs> And, and, but the point, matter of fact, says they, they, he says, cut him loose. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not the head was wrapped. But if the head was wrapped, a lot of people think that if they hadn't cut him loose quickly, he'd have suffocated, and, would have to do the whole thing over again. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, uh, you do what you will with that. The fact is, folks, think about it. You go to a funeral, and as you leave that afternoon, the guest of honor is at the garden gate saying, thanks for being here. It was good having you. The point is, you're going to go home talking about it. And the raising of Lazarus, this is where John begins his passion narrative. Because the scene is so dramatically set for the Passion Week. The Bible says, John 12, he says that many Jews came to the Passover that week only because they hadn't planned to go, but when they heard about this, we got to go see this. As a matter of fact, so many people were excited about Lazarus that the Pharisees tried to put him to death, for heaven's sakes. But here's where I'm taking you. Several weeks before the Passover, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now you have got to stay with me here. Now the Bible is explicit in John eleven that uh, John eleven verse forty fifty four. John eleven verse fifty four that after. Not what I want? Go away. How do I get rid of that? Look, can you make any sense of this? I'll just tell you. Ephraim is a little village just north of Jerusalem, seven, eight miles. And it's right on the border of, Ephra- of, of Samaria. Now, this is Passover, and Samaria is dangerous for Jewish folk. By the way, time out, I don't have time for this, but I, Jesus is wise as a serpent. In John chapter 4, when Jesus says, I need to go through Samaria... I'm going to rattle your cage here just a little bit. I don't believe the point is there's a woman at a well I need to lead to myself. I think the point is Jesus was determined to establish some relationships in Samaria. You see, well, I'll I'll come back to it. the point is, again and again, he's able to travel in and through Samaria when nobody else would because he has standing in Samaria. Remember, he goes and leads that woman to himself, and then the whole village listens, and become, many become believers, and they beg him to stay, and so on. Jesus had, and that, this, is, this is a culture where that would have spread. And clearly, remember in John chapter 7, where Jesus, the, tap, the piece of tabernacles is at hand, and Jesus' brothers, some of you remember this, say, well, aren't you going to go up? And he said, no, I'm not going to go up. It's not my time. You go ahead. It's your time. So they go, and then afterwards it says, after this, he went to Jerusalem as it were, secretly. Well, see, none of the others could take the route through Samaria. I think he just went through Samaria. When you emerge from Samaria, you're an hour's walk from Jerusalem. So I, so so Jesus, having you know, kind of arranged this, Jesus goes to a little village called Ephraim. Now here's where it comes full. And this is Luke 17:11, and I give it to you here on the sheet. So in Luke 1711, and we're harmonizing here in Luke 1711. Are you with me? Am I making sense? It was over in Perea that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Oh, and I I didn't say this, after he raised Lazarus from the dead, John 11, verse 53 says that uh, the Pharisees determined to put him to death. The Sanhedrin determined to put him to death. As a matter of fact, verse 57 of John 11 says that they put out a notice that if anybody knew where he was, they were to let him know so that they could arrest him. Understand this, folks, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he was a fugitive. He was on the run the most, Im- the most powerful leaders in all of Jewry had determined to arrest him. You can't overstate how careful Jesus has to, 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 to handle himself from there on. So he goes to Ephraim. Now, Ephraim, it's Passover season. The Jews are going to stay far away from, the, from Samaria, and Ephraim's right on the border of Samaria. So anyway, he tarries there. And then Luke 17 says this, and this is a verse that ties a lot of people in knots. But let's just take it for what it says. Uh, it says in, in Luke seventeen eleven, it came to pass that as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Now, just from what we talked about tonight, you know enough Bible geography to realize what the problem here is. If you're going to Jerusalem and you go to Samaria and then Galilee, you got Jerusalem in the rearview mirror, Right. And, and for that reason, a lot, uh, this is exactly what it says. Both the case endings and the prepositions are so explicit. This is, I use the King James here because it's the real Bible. No, I'm teasing <laughs> But, but, but uh, I'm not going to make any trouble, okay, Joe. But um, it's a good translation. What it says is, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Well, why would he do that going to Jerusalem? Oh, listen, he was wise as a serpent. So let me walk you through. Here, I'm going to follow it on the map. So, Jerusalem down to the south, Samaria, here's Judea, here's Samaria, here's Galilee. Now, you need to understand that, as I said to you a moment ago, most of the Jews, I mean a huge preponderance of the Jewish population in Israel in the first century, lived up in Galilee. So they, they, they would often come down for the feasts. Well, Galilee is, of course, up here. Now, there were two routes, get this, there will be a quiz called the Bema Sea. No, I doubt this will come up with the Bema Seat, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, but watch this. I want you to see it. There are two routes. Israel is a very closed country. Seattle is a very closed city, which means it's hard to put a road down, right? There are too many things in a way. Open country, you can put a road anywhere. There's just not a lot of ways to travel from, Jer- from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. And here they are. Number one... Oh, first of all, Galilee, on the south of of, of the region called Galilee, is a very important valley. Oh, I'd love to tell you about it. We should stand there and look at it someday. But uh, it's called the Jezreel Valley. Now watch this. What the Jews and... Oh, by the way, Jesus was a Galilean. He went up, the Bible says in Luke 2, that his father took his family to, to Passover every year. Jesus knew the habits of the Galilean Jews with regard to their travel to Passover. And he knew that they would oftentimes, again, what I'm trying to represent here, all the 200 villagers or so scattered throughout Galilee, they would make their way down into the Valley of Jezreel. And there they would, they, would, they would form kind of informal bands of Passover pilgrims in the sense that either route that you took, I'm going to describe it to you, it could be dangerous. So you never traveled alone. You always traveled in, in large groups. The women were usually kind of in the middle, and, a, and the men were on the ring and so on. They would make their way down. This, by the way, is what's going on, of course, when Jesus gets behind, uh, behind at the age of 12. It says both thought him to be in the company. At night they settle down and so on, and, and they realize he's gone. So here's the point. They gather in the Valley of Jezreel. Now watch this. They, if it were safe, they would like to take what was called the ridge route. Because there's a, a series of ridges that goes south. And you climb up on those ridges, and it's the easiest. about 60 miles, 65, but it's the easiest route. It's the route you would love to take, but the problem is Samaria. So in almost every case, rather than taking the ridge route, they would be forced to take another route. Now watch it here. Rather than going south through Samaria, they would go down the shaft of the arrow. It's called the Harod Valley. They would ford the Jordan River. Now they're going to skirt Samaritan territory. The border is the Jordan River. And then they go south through the rift. And then they re-ford the Jordan River and climb back up the backside of the Mount of Olives, and it brings them to Jerusalem. Now it's about half again as long. It's about 90 miles as opposed to 60 miles. It's a really difficult route in several ways that I won't go through. But Samaria is dangerous, so you don't have much of a choice. Now, here's the point. Folks, watch this. Jesus knows this. What does the Bible say? So, here we go again. Here is Jesus at Ephraim, right here. We know that, 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 okay, he's... And the Bible says that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. What's going on? Well, let's just take the Bible for what it says. He goes up into the Jezreel Valley. There, quite clearly, he falls in with a band of Passover pilgrims and he begins to travel with them. Now interesting enough I, this is kind of but, but everything I've been telling you about so far is Luke and John but at this point both Matthew and Mark pick the story up and they tell in great detail the story of Jesus traveling with a band of Passover pilgrims down the Jordan, uh, down to Herod Valley down the Jordan Rift across the Jordan and back up to Jerusalem does that make sense to you? Honest to goodness? Now, all along the way, he's doing miracles. And he's now this is where he teal, heals the ten lepers, and only one comes back. This is where, when he gets to Jericho, he heals two blind men. He's not only that, but he's being very much the provocateur. It's on this trip that he tells a rich young ruler to go sell everything he has. It's on this, this trip that... Uh, He challenges the Pharisaic teaching on divorce. They're not there, but you remember Matthew 19. It's on this trip that he encounters a tax collector in a tree and invites himself to lunch. Folks, a gasp would have gone up. A gasp when he, he invited himself. He is being very, he's drawing the attention so deliberately to himself. But now let me take you one more step. Am I making sense to you honestly? Remember where I'm taking you. All of this is Bible. But where I'm taking you is, Jesus promised that the city would welcome him as king. And it seems unspeakably unlikely that's going to happen, yet it's going to happen. Why? This is the answer, I believe. Jesus falls with these Passover pilgrims. He travels with them. It would have been at least four or five days. Everybody is so excited. If I'm in the next group back and I hear that the Nazarene is up there healing people, I'm going to hot foot it up and catch up. So I'm sure the group is growing and so on. And the fact is that now we come to John chapter 12. Now, this is the, we're harmonizing here. And in John chapter 12, you have this fascinating sentence that simply says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Jerusalem. No, 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 what have I said? He came to Bethany. All right, now let me just describe it to you. It's the same thing today. It's the same role. You come up, the very, very difficult, when you're coming from this last leg of the journey, if you take the rift route, brings you through Jericho and up to Jerusalem. Jericho, well, you've got to cross the Jordan River, which is 1,200 feet below sea level. Then you've got 13, actually. Then you come up to Jericho, which is 900 feet below sea level. And now in about 14 miles, you're going to climb to the top of the Mount of Olives, and then you're going to drop down into Jerusalem. It's a, it's a difficult road. But Jesus has been traveling for some days... And, uh, and, and everybody's excited. And just before you crest the, the Mount of Olives, you're coming up that long arduous Hill and, and you can see the top and the crest and that's where you're going to actually uh, be able to see the temple and so on. But just before you get to the top, there's a little road that goes off to the south. It goes to Bethany. So I want you to picture all of these people have been traveling with Jesus. They're excited and uh, they're going toward Jerusalem and all of a sudden they see By the way, six days before the Passover, take my word for it, I've spent a lot of time with it, it's Friday. So, it's Friday, sometime on Friday. They're hurrying to get up into the city because what happens when the sun goes down? It's Sabbath. You can't travel on the Sabbath. So they don't want to go to Bethany. That's just a little village. Jesus, they know. When they see Jesus, he's the center of the attention. He and his 12 apostles... Take a left turn, and they go off to the south toward Bethany. Everybody waves goodbye. Everybody in the crowd knows what's going on. Well, they're going down. They're going to keep Sabbath down there in Bethany. Now, on your sheet, there's actually something to fill in. Can you believe that? Uh, and I'll take you there. Uh, right here. You've got to go past the charts and so on. No, 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 I went too far. Quick book. We don't have time for this. Right here. So it's on page 9, and I, and I, and I, I talk about this i give you that little skinny map there where I'm trying to represent the same thing where they leave Bethany and go north through Samaria, passing through Samaria, passing through the heart of Samaria. Once you get into the Jezreel Valley, you're in Galilee. So now he makes his way down the rift and so on. And I make the point here, right here, that this is what I want you to see. Jesus has been traveling with hundreds of people. They're tremendously excited. And now they go into the city and they watched Jesus go down to Bethany on Friday. The point is, I am convinced that those several hundred people went into the city of Jerusalem, and they were bearing two messages. That's what I have for you there. Number one is, He is coming. Oh, I didn't say, shame on me, in John 11 and verse 55, it says that John tells us, this is a hugely important detail, After the raising of Lazarus, John says that there were many people who came up early to the feast that year to cleanse themselves. If you had any sort of impurity, you had to come and take care of that before the the Passover. So the city begins to grow in size several days and weeks before the Passover. And John says this, he says, uh, many people came up uh, for the rites of purification. Then it says this, that they stood in in, in the city and they spoke among themselves. Now what that means is they whispered because they knew the Pharisees had put out a notice. Anybody knows where Jesus is; he's to be arrested. But they're excited, and everybody is asking themselves, "Will he come to the feast?" That's John eleven fifty six. So what do you know? Because of the raising of Lazarus, the whole city of Jerusalem is a buzz with the question: Is the Nazarene going to come to the feast? Now on Friday afternoon, sometime several hundred people make their way into the city of Jerusalem. And they got the answer. And that is, he is coming. We know he's coming. We've been traveling. Oh, my goodness, blind people getting healed, lepers getting healed. Oh, you wouldn't believe it. So exciting. So number one, he is coming. But number two, he'll be here Sunday morning. Why? Because he's in Bethany. And Bethany is just outside what's called the Sabbath zone. And what that means is that if you're outside the Sabbath zone as the sun goes down on Friday, you can't come in until Saturday evening. If you're inside, you can't leave. The Sabbath day journey is about a mile and two-fifths. I could talk to you about it, but the point is it's not linear. It's not like you walk You, know, you walk that far and you've got to sit down and wait for the sun to go down. It's a zone. You can move around within the zone. But Bethany is outside the Sabbath zone. And the, and the zone was marked by the rabbis. So if you'd never been before uh, to Jerusalem as you made your way, you saw Jerusalem go down to Be- uh, Jesus go down to Bethany, you walk a little further, there's the marker of the Sabbath zone. There's Bethany, you know. So they know that he can't... Does that make sense to you? He's not going to be here until Sunday morning. Now, understand this, folks. Number one, I haven't talked about this, but at this season of history, because of Daniel, 7 and, Daniel 2, 7 and 9, God had given clear indication of when the Messiah was going to come. There was a 483-year clock that started to about 483 years ago. And the, and the Jews knew that Messiah was soon to come. Secondly, they had had it up to here with Rome. Rome was a hard taskmaster. They had a promise in the scriptures that in the days of the fourth kingdom Messiah, the stone cut out without hands, was going to roll out and crush Jew and exalt Israel. And, 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 and they knew it was time for Messiah to come. And I think the spirit is this. Hundreds of people come into the city. They're saying, he is coming. He is coming. Nazareth he's coming. Oh, it's exciting. He'll be here Sunday morning. And house by house and neighborhood by neighborhood during the Sabbath, they sit and they talk about it. And, 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 and I think they're probably saying, my good, how, how many degrees of separation? Can we still use that term? How many degrees of separation in that day must there have been between anybody and somebody who got healed? You know what I'm saying? There must, everybody must have had a second cousin or a neighbor down the street who'd, who'd been lame all of his life. And so I think people are sitting around and they're saying, my goodness, the Nazarenes is coming. He, he claims to be the Messiah. Now our leaders insist he's not. But man, I am sick of Rome, and he has healed a lot of people, and Lazarus is walking around the city, for heaven's sakes, if you were going to go into battle against a hideously powerful enemy, would you be encouraged to follow somebody who could raise you from the dead, for heaven's sakes? So I think that just the city just begins. No, there's no, there are no emails, there are no notices, there are no billboards. Just they know where he is. He's in Bethany. There's only one road that comes from Bethany to Jerusalem. So now, person by person, family by family, says, I'm going to get up and welcome him. And now Jesus rides into the city, and the whole city explodes in happy welcome. It's staggering. I go back to the question I asked in another how in the world did Jesus get away with this? I watched a video I could show it to you where some very important evangelical scholars ask that question how did Jesus get away with it? and by the time they're done their answer is well you know the gospel writers were close to it, and you see all the excitement, and you're excited because Jesus is here. You see all those people, they're excited too. You figure they must be excited for Jesus. It's too, you know, it, it, was a, it was probably just 30 or 40 people in a corner somewhere. Listen, that's not what the Bible says. And I'll tell you what else. That's exactly what the Romans were looking for. They had soldiers in peasant outfits through the crowd just looking for somebody who is plotting sedition, somebody who is claiming that so and so is a king, and that quick they're going to be gone. How do you explain the fact that Jesus was able to ride into the city and be welcomed as king and neither the Jewish nor the Roman authorities, the Jewish authorities had already proclaimed he was to be arrested and the Roman authorities were nervous as you can, as all get out at this season of the year and how do he get away with it? Exactly what the Bible says. He alerted the city and the, how are you going to arrest? The whole city? See the point? The whole city just erupted in happy welcome. Now, This is the triumphal entry. I give you in your notes that there are three lines of Old Testament prophecy that were fulfilled. Suffice it to say, and this is what I want you to catch, the triumphal entry. I call it in your notes a day of messianic presentation. It is the most important, dramatic, deliberate, prophecy-anticipated moment of Jesus' offer of himself. He is presenting himself as Messiah. And it is is dramatic, and I'm just going to leave you with this. We'll pick it up here tomorrow. Uh, Do you understand what I'm saying to you, though? Honestly, this didn't happen by accident. It was prophesied deliberately, and Jesus, I think, listen, I would argue that because Jesus was wise as a serpent, he orchestrated. He he had promised those Pharisees those weeks earlier, you're not going to see me until you cry out, blessed is he who comes the name of the Lord. Now on this Sunday morning, he, drive, he, he, he rides in and the whole city cries out, blessed is he. I think Jesus did that. In order to make that happen, he conceived a plan that was bottomlessly clever, but it didn't have anything to do with divine manipulation. Nobody was being robotized. There weren't people, you know, all of a sudden had to... Blessed are God. you know. I mean, sometimes I think we, we, we conceive it that way, that Jesus was some sort of colossus and he strode through life and everybody was just a... no, 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 no. Those people my point is, I think it was a plan that you and I could have conceived of if we were clever enough to do it. It, 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 it all fits together. He alerted the city and as he rode in, he was wildly accepted. Now, I want to ask one question and I'm not going to answer it but I want you to wake up thinking about it. It's a legitimate question, and it is simply this. Given Sunday, why Friday? The same crowd on Friday is going to be crying out, crucify him. We'll not have this man to reign over us. On, on Sunday, the whole city explodes in happy welcome. Be our king. On Friday, crucify him. Given Sunday, why Friday? It's a legitimate question, don't you think? We'll talk about it tomorrow, all right? Joe, you want to come? Okay, we'd like to uh, open a time of uh, question and answer. And if you have a question, just raise your hand. I'll bring the mic over to you. And then if you could say your name for the recording and then the question, that would be great. So we're going to start out right here. And can we use the black one as well so we can have two mics? And uh, maybe, Ted, you can do one side of the room, I'll do the other. Okay. Uh, thanks for presenting that. It makes the whole thing come alive when you share all that background information. That thanks for that. But my question is, um, so like obviously these Jews from the Old Testament, or you know, they knew that Messiah was going to come and then um, um, be king, right? But also, we as we know, because it happened already, you know, Isaiah says that he's going to die. Yes. So, and you mentioned that yes or yes. this. Earlier this oh, yeah. afternoon, that he said that he's going to die for just to his disciples. But um, where's the disconnect for the people during that time to think that he was going to be a king, but yet he was going to be later? You know, you know my question. Yes. Maybe you can answer that later. I mean, today, later. This All right, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought it up. No, it, it fits right here. As I understand, the question is: you have these clear Old Testament prophecies. As a matter of fact, Jesus was not real patient with those two guys on the road to Emmaus. And the guys on the road to Emmaus are really, really typical of the Jesus followers in that past tense. You remember the story I'm talking about, Luke 24? These two guys are walking along, and Jesus comes and joins them and asks them what they're so sorry about. And he says, you haven't heard why Jesus of Nazareth, blah, blah, blah. And then they said, uh, we thought he was the Messiah. We, we, past tense, we thought he was the Messiah. But he can't be. He's a dead guy. So, and what did Jesus say? Did he say, well, fellas, this is a really, this is a tough issue, so, you know, let me explain something. He said, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. And beginning at Moses and going through all the prophets, he showed how Messiah, take Jesus out of it for a minute, whoever the Messiah is, how Messiah must needs die. And after that, glory. So the Bible is the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament. Are, they are absolutely explicit that Messiah would die. But I'll tell you something. I don't think it's, it's easy for us to understand how difficult that was, that Messiah will... Be. Now, Peter says this. Peter, in a very interesting statement, in 1 Peter 1, he says, The prophets themselves, remember this passage, searched what or what manner of time the Spirit which was in them did testify... when when he testified of the sufferings of Messiah and the glory that should follow. So think about what that means. Isaiah himself writes Isaiah 53. He knows he's talking about Messiah. There are perhaps teardrops on the page. And then he's dancing around the room because he's just written Isaiah 61. And he knows that Messiah is going to reign and he's so excited about it And then he goes and sits in his armchair and scratches his head and says, Now, wait a minute. How can that both be? How can he both suffer and reign? Now, watch this, folks. You and I have an insight that was not available to the Old Testament saint or prophet. Takes all the mystery out of this. It is the insight of two comings. Now, we know that. Of course, he came once to die. He'll come again to reign. But in the Old Testament... When Messiah comes, he comes. Now, that's not to say that the New Testament somehow puts the lie to the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, here, listen to this. Unto us, a son is given, right? Unto us, a child is born, comma. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. You and I are living on that comma, and it's 2,000 years long so far. So if I'm reading that in the Old Testament, and it's really the tense is all the same in the Old Testament, unto us the Son is given, unto us the Son is born, the government is upon his shoulder, prophetic perfect. But the point is that again again in the Old Testament, when Messiah comes, this, this idea that he's going to come, be rejected and depart and then later come, you, you can't find that in the Old Testament. I think there, there, we can maybe discern some of God's reason for that. So in answer to your question, I finally get around to it. The reality of Messiah both dying, suffering, if you don't mind, and reigning, which is so native to us, was really foreign and inscrutably mysterious to the Old Testament. saint. Now, on the other hand, that doesn't excuse the fact that, and, and uh, I, I think it's fair to say that of the two, they picked the, well, the one they liked the most, you know. And so they focused clearly, and this was the, to this day, Jewish thinkers Apologists will say that there are two elements of the Christian gospel. No, there are two elements of the Christian doctrine, understanding of the Messiah that are totally foreign, have always been foreign to them. Number one, that he's God. Number two, that he's going to suffer. I said, we don't. Now, they got the same Bible, by the way. You know that in their annual lectionaries, they, they never read Isaiah 53. They avoid it. But the fact of the matter is, that is, the passages they're reading through, the Bible, through their Bible in the, in the course of a year, they never read Isaiah 53, but they know it's there, and they have their own explanation. So I, I won't go down that road. The point is that, and, I, and I'll confess to you, on the one hand, uh, I, it's, easy, it's, it's kind of intuitively easy for me to get after the apostles. You should have seen it, and Jesus said you should have seen it. Oh, fools and slow of art, it's there. I can see it. Why didn't you see it? On the other hand, if I'd have been there, I wouldn't have done any better. But but it's 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 I think it's primarily a function of number one, it is a difficult concept. Now, by the way, when you come to difficult concepts. That is where the Bible says this and the Bible says this, and it's hard for us to understand exactly how to put them together. It's not up to you to figure it out. It's up to you to bow the knee to everything the Bible says. That makes sense to you? Think about prayer. How does prayer work? Are you telling God something you didn't, he didn't know before you mentioned it to him? You know, good heavens. On the other hand, people fall into this ditch over here and say, well, prayer is not really anything real. It's just about getting our spirit in shape. No, no. Prayer changes things. I can't understand that, but my, my, my responsibility is to bow the knee to the fact that there's a sovereign God who orders history, and, and somehow in, the, in that matrix, he, prayer is real. Well, I would have encouraged, maybe I, I couldn't live up to it, but all right, the Bible says he's going to die, believe it. The Bible says he's going to reign, believe it, even though you can't figure it out. But nonetheless, I would say, number one, it is really mysterious, and number two, the idea of a dying Messiah is odious. You know. Now, just to make a quick point here, and I want to take another question, I'm sorry, but uh, let me take you to one verse here. And it's in Luke uh, 18, verse uh, 31. I, I'm, I'm just going to read it to you because it's really, you, you get a feel for this. Luke 18, and verse 31, it says, Then he took the twelve aside, and this, by the way, just on his way up to the Passover at which he's going to die. And he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man, his favorite name for himself, 81 times he refers to himself as the Son of Man, uh, will be accomplished. He'll be delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, insulted, spit upon. They'll scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Now, I always say those are, those are melancholy verses, but is it hard to understand? you need some sort of training in literature to understand? I mean, it's almost see spot run, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. But look at this verse right here. This is, this is the amazing right here. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they didn't know the things which were spoken. I mean, Luke is just tripping over himself to make the point they didn't get it. So it's, it's a reality. Uh, it doesn't take anything away from the fact that either, A, the Bible is explicit, and, and, and they were uh, responsible to understand. And, uh, but I think, again, it goes back to, uh, on the one hand, it is a difficult concept. On the other hand, it's not something you want to hear. Very good question, though. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, verse Psalms 118, 21 through 29, that it's God reassuring Israel that he is on their side. John, which passage? No, uh, Psalms 118. 118,
1: 21
0: 29. Yeah. It's kind of like reassurance for all the tribulation they're going through. Very good. Very good. And of course, he's making a point he's the only hope they have. He's on their side, and that's the only reason they have any hope at all. But yeah, very good. That was Psalm 118, 21 to 29. Read it through. Yeah, it's... Any, anybody else? I'm warning you, I've got things to talk about if you don't. Yeah, Simon. So staying in that same passage, how would the Jewish people have understood the Psalm 118, 22, the, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Well, now two things. Number one... Uh, the literal reading, as a matter of fact, let me go back to that. The literal reading of Psalm 118 uh, was it 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What it says in the Hebrew is it's become the rosh of the corner, the head of the corner. And there are, you can take that as cornerstone. That's not how I take it. Uh, I, the way it's been explained, and this is Alfred Eddershine, to be honest with you, is that is that in building a stone whole house or wall anything with a wall when you come to a corner tying the two corners together is is really dicey and that the the picture is this that as you're building this wall or this house and the stone masons are are working away at it there will be a number of boys apprentices and so on who are dispatched to go find the next stone and to bring it uh, especially if it's field stone. We're not talking mortars here. We're talking about the kind of fieldstone stone that you just chip and so on, get, get some shape to it. And in many cases, there'd be, in some cases, there'd be a stone which was brought and the, the stonemason said, no, it doesn't work. Give me another one. So, so the stone was off projected But when you get to the very top of the, the reason I think this makes more sense is because you don't wait till the end of the job to, you know, I'm so saying the cornerstone has to come first, has to come early. But the stone that's often rejected, when you get to the head of the corner, it fits perfectly. And so it's given this place of honor. I, and, but I, and I think that's how they would have understood it. So how do they understand it with regard to, the, uh, to Jesus himself? Well, Jesus appeals to this passage a number of times and, 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 and actually collapses a couple of passages about the cornerstone or the stone that's going to crush you and so on. And I think, look... Uh, the, All right, let me go back to this question. With regard to this business of Jesus, I'm not Jesus, I say that before we know it's Jesus. It's just Messiah. We know that when Messiah comes, he's going to suffer, and, and then he's going to reign. And I said that the insight that takes all the work out of that for us is the fact of two comings, right? But why, biblically, did Jesus come twice? Or, to say it another way, why did Jesus not establish the kingdom when he came the first time? One word. What is it? How was he received by the Jews? He was rejected. And rejection, you know, the whole book of Matthew, for my money, is written to answer one question. And that is, this is so big. If the Nazarene is the Messiah, where is our kingdom? Because when Messiah comes, he establishes a kingdom. And folks, I'm going to get ugly about this. It's a real kingdom. It's too bad what we've done to the concept of kingdom. We've just stripped of all. It's like the the guy who f- went from Jerusalem to Jericho was stripped of all its goods. You know, a kingdom just means kind of God having a lot of influence in your heart. A, a, a kingdom is a kingdom. And the Jews had been taught to look for a kingdom. And they longed to be part of that kingdom. And they knew this, that when Messiah comes, he'll establish a kingdom. The fact is, that's the whole point of Matthew. I think if you're witnessing to your Jewish neighbor, of course, that early uh, decade of of Christianity was entirely Jewish, and I mean, virtually, and so you're witnessing to your Jewish neighbor, and that's what he's going to ask. Where's the kingdom? How come I'm paying taxes to Rome if Jesus is the Messiah, for heaven's sakes? And the answer is, you rejected him. So an interesting thing that built into that passage that teaches that, now exactly, I don't know, if the question is how would the pre-Jesus Jews have handled that particular passage, I'm not sure. Uh, I will say this, that whenever the Jews today, this may not be very helpful, but whenever the Jews today, the unbelieving, thinking Jewish community, comes to passage about suffering, who do they insist is going to do the suffering? The Jews. They will take Isaiah 53 as the Jews, as the Jewish people. And they, they suffer on behalf of the world because they bring so much to the world and they're despised by the world. And uh, 22, you know, the, the, the Jewish I'm going to, you know, the, the Jews in the world are less than 1% of the population and 22% of the Nobel Peace Prize have been given to Jews and so I'm going to all these statistics about the remarkable, and of course it, gave us, you know, it was through them that we got the Ten Commandments, all these defining, so they think, so I, I wonder if they would not have gone to that and thought, well, there will be suffering and Israel will probably bear the suffering, but Properly understood, and quite frankly, understanding it the way we can because we have the fulfillment, we have Jesus' life and so on. It's interesting that in the passage itself, uh, the, 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 the Father acknowledges that, that the, the, the cornerstone is going to be rejected. Listen, uh, we done? Right. No. Let, me, let me talk about one thing. Let me take the, the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Has anybody ever struggled with this? Thursday or Friday? Nobody? Yeah? There, there's a big debate. Now I say a big debate. There's a significant debate. It goes on. And uh, there are those who believe that Jesus died on Thursday. Now, let me tell you something, and I, 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 I've already played my hand, so you know that I believe Friday. But here's the thing. Every honest to goodness, and everybody I think would acknowledge this, every indication in the record is that he died on a Friday. Uh, one of the most important is that the Jews do not name the days of the week. They number them. So Sabbath means seventh. So you have first day, second except Friday. Here are the days of the week in the Jewish mind. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, uh, fifth day, preparation day, seventh day. Because, see, when the sun goes down on Shabbat, uh, on Friday, and Shabbat begins, you can't do any work. So if you want to have Some lights on, you got to turn them on before the sun goes down. If you want to cook anything, you got to cook it. So they will stop everything they're doing in the middle of the day on Friday and they will prepare for the Sabbath. Well, the Bible said that Jesus was on the cross, they wanted to bring him down because it was the preparation day. It's another word of saying Friday. If anybody could just as well say it was Friday, so I go on and on. Now, here's the point why, given the fact, at least by my analysis, the the new the gospels are so clear that he died on on on, on uh, Friday. Why would anybody struggle with it? What's the answer? One and it's a it's a it's a significant issue. Three days and three nights. Three and three nights. That's the problem, and it's a real problem. You've got to deal with it. If Jesus died on Friday, rose on Sunday, how's that three days and three nights? Do I give you this in your notes? Um, it just occurred to me, but that's all right. This is a good time to deal with it. I don't have to do it later. The fact is that. Uh, and I do. If you'll go to page 21, I give you two pages uh, concerning this very issue, and I want you to see them on the, on the second page, so page 22. Folks, listen. This is, I, I don't mean, it, it, this is entirely intramural. There's no doctrinal heresy at stake. There's, it, we, we all believe the Bible in all of its parts, but we have this much of a problem. Now, let me tell you, I can make the problem just a little bit worse for you, because there are three times in the Gospels where the Bible says, what well, Jesus says, every time, it's in the, it's in the uh, Jonah passage, as he was in the heart of this, so in the belly of the earth, for three days and three nights. Now, there are about 42 times in the Gospels and the Epistles where it says that Jesus rose on the third day. So, clearly, those two mean the same thing, right? Cause, and, by, and Jews, almost virtually always, they would have been computing... Uh, What we call uh, inclusive reckoning So Friday, Saturday, Sunday is the third day How are you going to reckon I think the best explanation you Go to page 22 And look uh, way down Toward the uh, bottom of the page Under letter D I have a critique of the Friday view This gets a little technical But number one and then letter D This is a big help I think And I'm going to say again You got to read the Bible in terms of its own culture and letter D there, I cite a rabbi, Eliezer ben Edzariah. Do you see that? Lived about a hundred. And, and he says this. Now understand this. The rabbi is, is not a Christian. He's not talking about Christian. He's not trying to explain how long Jesus... He's just trying to say, this is how we use the language. And he says, I'm going to read it to you. A day and night are an onah. Onah means uh, indivisible unit. It's a one-piece it's not 12 hours and 12 hours. It's day night is one unit of time. And then he says, any portion of the onah is as the whole of it. See what's at stake there? It'll really solve the problem, I think. So the way the Jews used the language by their own first century testimony is that folks, they didn't have wristwatches. They didn't count, you know, they, they, they kept times in much broader categories. And to them, a day night was an onah, and any portion of Jesus dies on Friday, he's in a tomb, that's a day night, just for a few hours. Then all day Saturday, Sunday morning, he's in the tomb until sunrise, he rises. Sunday, of course, starts, a Friday, a Saturday, as the sun goes down. So three days and three nights, any part of a three-day-night cycle is three days and three nights. that makes sense to you? Honest to goodness. So, now... Yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I, I know that that's troublesome, and I don't want to spend a lot of time with it, but I try and break it down there. All right, anything else? We can be done. All right. All right. I... What, what, what question is going to keep you awake tonight? <laughs> Given Sunday, why Friday? Honest to goodness. Chew on it. It's, a, it's an important question.